Welcome to another episode of the World Salon Podcast. In this episode, we will explore the intricate tapestry of technological advancement and global initiatives aimed at climate change mitigation. We'll be diving into the insights shared by Professor Bruce Usher, a renowned expert in finance, social, and environmental issues at Columbia University. From the meteoric rise of renewable energies to the changing dynamics of international climate accords, there's a lot to unpack. Let's dive into the heart of these pressing issues and discern where the world stands in its pursuit of a sustainable future. Let's dive into our first topic. So you wrote a book called Renewable Energy, A Primer for the 21st Century. Now the book dives into the transformative shifts from fossil fuels to renewable energy sources, a transition that holds profound implications for our world. So, you know, tell us about the book and tell us about, you know, these key reflection points from the transition from fossil fuels to our current system. Okay, so first of all, let me say that book was written about five years ago. Mm. Actually, it was published four years ago, so it's really only written five or six years ago. And I wrote the book for a very simple reason. A friend of mine had a solar array put on her, um, her building, actually not too far from here, mm. over in Queens. And I visited with some other friends, and people were looking at the solar arrays saying, well, this is nice, but it only works because of government subsidies. Solar will never be competitive with fossil fuels. Mm. And I remember sort of looking around. Now this is a highly educated, very knowledgeable group of people. And I looked and I said, they don't get it. They don't understand that renewable energy is already competitive with fossil fuels. Now this is five or six years ago. And every year becomes more competitive, which I'll get to in a second. So I said to myself, if this group doesn't know that, who knows this? Only the people who are really specialized in the field, like myself. So I said, I, I should write a book about this. So that was, that was, that was the, the, the spur that got me to, to write this first book. And what I wrote about in the book were some pretty simple concepts. The first concept is simply that renewable energy, solar in particular, but wind as well, initially, the initial technology is very costly and actually doesn't function that well. Like most technologies, if we think about things like computer chips or, or any other technology, the initial versions are very expensive and don't actually do much. They're not that productive. But over time, we get something that we find that we call in technology the learning curve. And the learning curve is simply a way of measuring for every doubling in production of a product, how much does that product improve in its performance and or decrease in costs. And this is constantly been a apply to semiconductor chips, to all sorts of different technologies, right? Well, if we look at solar and wind, the two big renewable categories, we see that the learning curve informs us on how fast those technologies are getting cheaper, mm -hmm. which is another way of saying how quickly those technologies are able to compete with fossil fuels every year. And what we find is when I wrote the book five or six years ago, those technologies were already getting pretty competitive. You could almost say, you know what? I think I can produce electricity from solar or wind, maybe almost for the same cost as natural gas or coal or oil. That was five or six years ago. And what the book said is, every year it's going to get more competitive. And if you look at where we are today, that's the case. Today, the cheapest form of electricity production in the world, in most places, not everywhere, <coughs> is renewable power. And that's what the book was trying to communicate, that you've got a product that is only going to get better year after year, and it's going to replace fossil fuels. It's going to replace fossil fuels because it's a better, cheaper product. It's also going to replace fossil fuels because we have to, 
reduce our reliance on fossil fuels or avoid, you know, to avoid catastrophic climate change. Mm -hmm. So these two things are happening. The other thing I wrote about in the book, just to round it out, is the connection between renewable energy and electric vehicles. So the obvious connection is renewable energy produces electricity. You can use that electricity in, in a vehicle. And so you both decarbonize your power production. You also decarbonize your transportation. That's a good thing. And when I wrote the book, electric vehicles were just starting to get popularity. You really had Tesla and nothing else at that point in time. But there's another issue that's not widely understood, which is that electric vehicles are essentially a way of storing electricity. Electric vehicles is really a battery on wheels, a very large battery. And this is very important because the weakness of renewable energy is that it's intermittent. You only produce power when it's sunny, you only produce power when it's windy. And of course we need power 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. So you have to be able to store some of that power. Electric vehicles are a medium for storage. Turns out that the average American drives less than an hour a day. So 23 hours a day, their electric vehicle is sitting there storing power. And that power can be used by other citizens, by the grid, and so on. So the book sort of brings together all these, frankly, pretty basic issues around renewable energy and electric vehicles, but tries to lay out both where we are at that point in time, and more importantly, where we're headed. And then lastly, what, is, what are the implications for climate change? What does this mean for climate change? And the implication is that our transition to renewable energy and also electric vehicles is going to have an enormous impact on our ability to avoid catastrophic climate change. These are really important transitions. The only question, and the book ends with this, is will it happen fast enough? Mm -hmm. We're going that way. The book is very clear. This is going to happen. We're going to move to a world of renewables. We're moving to a world of electric vehicles. What the book doesn't say with certainty, because we don't know at this point, is we'll have fast enough to avoid catastrophic climate change. Mm -hmm. That's still an outstanding question. Mm. So regarding your inspiration for writing this book, I think that's a good inspiration as any. I think it's a very good one, right? That you have a group of friends who are very highly educated, and yet they don't see the future of renewable energies. Why do you think that is? Why were these highly educated groups of people unable to see that renewable energies are the future and that they'll replace fossil fuels within the next couple of years? And so one, one answer would be, well, it's very wonky and technical and, you know, most, you know, like this is an area that I know and obviously many others don't. But I think there's a more fundamental reason, which is issues like climate and energy are very fundamental to our life. We experience climate every day in, in the form of the weather that we experience daily. Uh, energy is what drives our basic life. Without energy, without inexpensive energy, we wouldn't have a modern economy and a, and a modern lifestyle. And as a result of that, because they're so important to us, we tend to um, have what's called present bias. In other words, we view those topics through the lens of the present, we, through the lens of what we know today, what we're experiencing today. And very few people today are experiencing renewable energy or electric fields. They're, they're sort of coming, they're just starting to get to know it. So their, their bias today is what they've experienced historically and where they are in the moment. What they're not thinking about is where we're headed. And actually, when it comes to climate change, that's all that matters. Climate change is not a question of the present. It's a question of the future. And 
we being humanity, humans, are, are not that good really at understanding those trends in the future. So I, I think it's as simple as that. I see. And so as you said, the book was published four years ago, written five, six years ago. What do you see as the biggest change from when you wrote the book to now? And have we reached that inflection point where, okay, renewable energies are a lot cheaper than, than traditional sources of energy, and we're reaching that point of mass adaptation? Yeah, mass adoption. So I think there has been some change. Now, that change is more recent, just in the last two or three years. And that's what I wrote about in the second book, Investing in the Era of Climate Change. And that book begins by looking at four trends that are affecting both things like the energy transition, but more broadly affecting the flow of capital into um, businesses like renewable energy. And those four trends, I mean, let me spend a minute on those four trends, because I think they're, they are really important. And those first of those trends is what we call the physical manifestation of climate change, which simply means that climate change, which is something that scientists have been predicting now for decades, we're starting to actually see it and feel it and experience it. Now, this is not a good thing. This is mm. actually a terrible thing. And for those who experience tremendously hot summers in Europe or the wildfires in Canada and the smoke here in New York, or you can pick pretty much any part of the world today, mm. you can see and feel climate change. Now, that is pretty recent. Up until just a few years ago, climate change had not yet been felt by, by many people. Why does that matter? It's a very important trend because once people start to actually experience climate change, they, they start to change what we call the social norms. So they start to realize this problem's real, uh, we need to deal with it, and they start to do things differently. They may change how they purchase products, they may change the type of companies they want to work for, they may change the companies who want to buy products from, and so on and so on. There's all sorts, of, uh, all sorts of research around how this affects consumer behavior and human behavior. The key point being that we now are starting to experience climate change, and this is very recent. This is now changing social norms. We're starting to see people getting upset about this and taking action. That's mm -hmm. a second change. That's really important as well. Because of those first two changes, we see a third change, which we now see governments taking action. Now, for several decades, governments have you know, sometimes taking action, sometimes not, some parts of the world more aggressively than others. Um, but you're now starting to see a lot more government action than you had historically. And here in the U.S., for example, you have things like the Inflation Reduction Act getting passed and so on, which is the biggest uh, legislation probably anywhere in the world around climate change today. So you're starting to see government take yeah, government action because people are starting to get, you know, particularly concerned about this issue. So those are three big trends. And the fourth trend which I started with in the initial book, but has really become much bigger now, is really developments in technology to decarbonize global economy. In other words, what I write about what we call climate solutions. Mm -hmm. Let's just step back for a second. So I've been working in this area for more than two decades, right? So you go back 20 years, Charlie. 20 years ago, the science of climate change was pretty clear. The scientists told us, we, we have a problem coming, we need to decarbonize, we need to reduce emissions. But what we didn't have 20 years ago, you didn't have actually any solutions. You couldn't decarbonize the global economy without essentially wrecking the global economy. There was, renewable energy was extremely costly. Let me give you an example. So I started working on this a little over 20 years ago. If you added up all the solar in the world, all the solar panels in the world, 
they produce about as much power as one coal-fired power plant. Oh, wow. That's not solving climate change, right? That's not going to do it. Uh, electric vehicles, there was no electric vehicles 20 years ago. Or what was there is, you know, golf carts. I mean, right. you know, you can't replace your, your SUV with one of those and so on. So what's happened now, solar and wind power, as I mentioned, are the cheapest forms of power in the world. We installed last year well over 100 coal plants worth of solar in just one year. And that number is increasing significantly this year. Um, electric vehicles, it's not just Tesla anymore. And Tesla itself is no longer a small little startup and so on and so on. So you're starting to see these industries transition. In fact, today, the technologies that are commercial and at scale, like renewable energy and, 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 and electric vehicles, if we implement those globally, we reduce greenhouse gas emissions, CO2 emissions specifically, by about 50%. We get halfway to net zero. And the other half, we don't have commercial solutions yet. They're not a scale yet. But those technologies exist. So it's not like we don't know how to solve them, how to reduce, how to decarbonize. Mm -hmm. we, we just have to advance those technologies. Now, when I say we just have to, it's actually quite <laughs> there are a number, number of uh, hurdles to doing that. But there is a, there is a, a, a way to do it. And, that did not exist before. So those are the big changes. Those trends now take us to a point today where we say, can we avoid catastrophic climate change? By which I mean a warming of the planet by more than one and a half to two degrees Celsius. And the answer is we can. We have the technologies. We have the capital. That doesn't mean we will. And so when I teach on this subject, that, you know, the difference between can and will, right? They're very small words with very big meaning. Why, why might we not? And the answer, is, um, the answer is complex, but it really comes down to um, human behavior and, and how we're organized globally, by which I mean uh, climate change is a very long-term problem, and as humans, we're really wired to deal with short-term problems. We're designed to deal with immediate threats and immediate opportunities. We're not that great at looking at problems that are so long-term, they're actually multi-generational in this case, and saying we need to make certain actions today that will benefit people 30, 40, 50 years from now. That's a big challenge. And that second part of that big challenge is climate change is global. It's a global issue. So we need to make decisions today that are going to help not just us, but are going to help everyone globally. In other words, we need to cooperate globally. And this, this is a challenge. As, as, as a species, we're not that great at global cooperation. In fact, we're terrible at it. Uh, you can just look at the COVID epidemic to see you know, how nation states just, just don't cooperate that well. Mm -hmm. So these are the hurdles. We can address and avoid catastrophic climate change doesn't mean we will. We might, be, we might be very slow at getting our act together and find ourselves in a very difficult position as a result of it. Professor Usher acknowledges that there's been substantial progress in renewable energy technologies and electric vehicles, especially in the last two to three years. He identifies four key trends driving this change. Experiencing the physical effect of climate change, shifting global norms, increased government action, and advancement in decarbonizing technologies. 
while the professor is optimistic that the technology and capital to combat climate change exists, he emphasizes the difference between can and will. The challenge, according to him, lies in human behavior and our ability to address long-term global issues. So it seems like it's very important. There's a very important distinction between can and will. And so moving from this can to will is also very important. What do you think is the biggest factor or the, the most important thing that we can do now to move from, okay, we can do it, to yes, we will do it? Yeah. Is it political? Is it financial? Is it social? Yeah. It's, to a certain extent, all of the above. But I think we need to understand sort of the framing of that when I say all of the above. So until fairly recently, all of the above was really about how do we, um, how do we, put in place the right policies? How do we get people to understand the issue? How do we get things started and find a way forward? We really didn't have, I, I think there really was not a clear understanding of what we could do to decarbonize global economies. And the default in that situation was uh, that countries should negotiate agreements to cap and reduce emissions. So if we think about how to address climate change, you know, back in the late 80s, we first start to see scientists warning us of it, right? And then you start to have these big global conferences starting in 1992 in Rio de Janeiro and then 1997 in Kyoto and so on, what we call the COP conferences. Mm -hmm. And the concept behind those conferences was bring all the nation states together and negotiate an agreement to address this issue. And at the time, that made a lot of sense because it's a global problem. We have to sort of cooperate to make this work. What we found by 2015 in Paris, after having gone through this for a while, was we were incapable of agreeing a global agreement that was actually a workable agreement. And so out of Paris comes a very different agreement. And I think people are not exactly um, understand the difference here that it's not a global cap on emissions. Paris is something else. Paris says each country gets to set their own targets on emissions. Each country gets to decide their own path on emissions. And what we agree to globally is to report what we're doing, report our progress, and share how we're doing that. What it does is allow each country to select its own path. Now, when the Paris Agreement was negotiated, many people, including myself, looked at that and said, how can that work? It's not a global cap. Why would each country do anything productive? And that's, that sounds like a very weak plan. But in fact, to the surprise of many, it's working in, to a certain extent better than expected. And what's happened is we've gone from a world of global cooperation, which never, never worked, to one of, let's say, global competition to decarbonize. And the example of that is the Inflation Reduction Act that was, that was passed in the U.S. So when the Inflation Reduction Act gets passed, domestically here, we see two things. We see a lot of excitement around the decarbonization of the U.S. economy. That's really important for those who care about climate change. But you also see a lot of excitement from businesses and investors around this essentially government policy, economic policy, to rebuild the American economy, to make it stronger better. And the reaction from Europeans and other governments, China and others, was very telling. Because the reaction one would expect it would be to say, that's 
fabulous the U.S. is finally taking serious issues around climate change. And I think you got some of that reaction. But the reaction you really got was um, the U.S. is enacting very aggressive economic policy. They're competing in an unfair way. And so what do other countries do? Well, they start to do the same thing. And we're starting to see Europe, China, and other countries enact their own policy that both decarbonizes their economies and allows them to compete more effectively. But each country's taking their own path. Each country is deciding what works best for them. In the US, we tend to use more what we call carrots, economic policy, subsidies, incentives, tax incentives mostly. In Europe, they use more sticks, you know, regulation. So you know, each does it slightly differently, but the point is it's a way of both decarbonizing and, and competing. Now to your question. Your question is so great. So what do we do now, right? What do we need more of now? And what we really need to do more now is not to invent something new. I don't believe at this stage we need to create some international agreement. I don't think we will, and I don't think it'll work. I don't think we need to invent dramatically new policies or even invent new technologies. What we need to do is two things. One, take the take the the policies and technologies that we know work, that are already at scale, and we need to make them universal and do it quickly. Or to put it in more specific terms, we need renewable solar and wind everywhere as quickly as possible. Do exactly what we're doing. We're doing the right thing. This is what many people don't seem to understand. We're making tremendously tremendous progress in that area. But we need to do so much more. Just, just do more faster. Just scale. Same with electric vehicles. And electric vehicles, two-wheelers, three-wheelers, automobiles, eventually trucks, hopefully all forms of transportation at some point. Implement that as fast as possible. That would get us 50% of the way where we need to go. And then the other 50%, we need some very targeted policies, um, in some cases some pretty deep subsidies to make sure that those technologies move forward. And I'm thinking of things around whether it's a, a green hydrogen or carbon capture or very niche technologies in sectors like cement or steel, which individually have very material greenhouse gas emissions, and you need some real, real support for those sectors to decarbonize. Very complex technologies there. And so I think, I think we, need to, we need to go a little deeper in that side of it. Mm -hmm. So two, build more scale, and be more innovative on the stuff that's not quite there yet. I see. I think building more scale is definitely very important. And you brought up a very interesting point. So you said that with the beginning of the Paris Accords, right, countries were able to set their own standards. And that has led to a sort of, instead of cooperation, competition, which you believe actually fosters faster change as countries compete with each other to create these new technologies, to, to better implement these new technologies. Do you think this competition is purely beneficial, or do you think there's some sort of a backlash that could come with this type of competition? Uh, I don't think it's purely beneficial, and it's not the optimal solution. The optimal solution would be the, the one that was initially tried, which is global cooperation. And, and the reason for that is, 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 is pretty straightforward. Climate change is a classic, uh, what we call tragedy of the commons. It's a global issue. You reduce the greenhouse gas emissions anywhere on the planet. You help everyone. And so the most efficient way to deal with that is to ensure that we're all working together to reduce, reduce our emissions wherever we can, cheapest and most quickly. 
but it doesn't work. We're unable to do that. And so I would say this is second best. But second best actually seems to be working better than I or many other people predicted in the sense that competition spurs action very quickly. Is it odds? Well, no. You get, you get a lot of inefficiencies in that process. You get duplication of efforts. You get efforts that don't occur in certain places that perhaps don't have the resources to move as quickly and so on. It's not the most efficient uh, system. But I would take an imperfect model over no model, mm -hmm. which is really what we had, um, and, and run with that. And that's, that's where we are today. I see. So with the U.S., there's the Inflation Reduction Act, which has pushed forward you know, this sort of drive towards renewables a lot. In other parts of the world, what are some similar acts? You know, what are some things that China is doing? What are some things that the European is doing yeah. that is helping them push forward this So Europe Europe's, um, has really pushed forward more from a regulatory framework and particularly focused around pricing carbon. And they do that in two ways, uh, depending on the country. In some countries, they use carbon taxes. And across the EU, for not all industrial sectors, but almost all uh, industrial sectors, they have uh, carbon markets, an emissions trading system. And so whether it's taxes or a carbon market, in either case, you're pricing carbon. It's, it's, a, it's a regulatory structure. It's a, it's a stick as opposed to a carrot that by pricing carbon, you change business behavior, you change consumer behavior, and thereby lower emissions. Now, Europe has also had a number of subsidies and incentives over the years to promote renewable energy, and many European countries you know, travel to, to, to Spain today or Germany or much of Europe today, you'll see enormous amount of renewable energy. So they, they've had a bit of both, subsidies and, and uh, regulations in that sense. Um, China has also had a mix, more around subsidies early on, and more recently with, with pricing carbon not through uh, taxes, but through carbon markets as well. Uh, they have six, I believe it's six markets in China, fairly both new and still relatively small and relatively lower price on carbon. Uh, but again, sort of going in that direction of both sort of carrot and stick. Here in the US, the Inflation Reduction Act is incredibly uh, beneficial but it's all carrot. <laughs> we, don't, we don't have any sticks here. In other words, we don't price carbon in the U.S. And that, that, that's, that's, that's a weakness. That's a weakness. Ideally, you want both of these, these levers at play. And, and um, we, we do not have a carbon price in the U.S. We do in California. It's very limited in the California market. Um, and some voluntary markets here. But, but there's no tax and there's really no, no emissions market here in the U.S. I see. And which system do you think is the most effective? You know, the U.S. model of all carrots, the European model of mostly sticks, or yeah. a chi hybrid Chinese model? Well, I think it depends on the country, and sometimes within the country, what areas. So I don't think I think it's um, incorrect to say one is better than the other. I think it really depends on the politics. Um, I mean, one of the reasons we, you know, we often get questioned why why is the carrots in the U.S. I's industrial policy in the U.S., economic policy, so often through the tax code. It seems a very strange way. And the answer is it's politically expedient. Mm. The politics in Europe are very different. And so you have a different, you know, there. So you have to recognize the politics. You have to recognize the, the industry that's in those locations, the, the, the investments in those locations, and so on. So I think it's very important to recognize that there's no one right mix for any country.
Which brings me to, uh, not exactly the question you asked, Charlie, but I, I want to bring up an important point. Again, going back to when I first worked in this area 20 years ago, in those days, we divided the world into developed and developing when it came to climate change. So it was the developed world, which had more resources and needs and higher emissions and needs to reduce emissions, and the developing world where economic growth was a priority and at some point reduce emissions. And that, that uh, description of the world still exists to a great extent today. And when we talk climate change, people talk sometimes use different terminology, global north, global south, and things like this. And I think, and I understand the rationale for making those distinctions, but I think it's a mistake to do so. In other words, I think that the large countries or regions, economic regions of the world, each have unique opportunities and challenges when it comes to climate change. The U.S. obviously is one example of that. Europe, many similarities, but many differences from the U.S. So we shouldn't say there's, just because they're both highly developed economically, they're quite different when it comes to climate change. China, by far the world's largest emitter of greenhouse gases, a whole different set of opportunities and challenges. India, again, of very interesting things going on in India. A lot of challenges there, but a lot of implementation of renewable energy and uh, electrification, particularly of two-wheeler and three-wheel vehicles. Brazil, again, another whole set of challenges and opportunities there. Um, and then, you know, many, many other kinds. Indonesia, uh, many, South Africa, you know, we look at, say, Sub-Saharan Africa. Again, I would put Nigeria and South Africa, very unique situation compared to other Sub-Saharan African countries. So my point being that we have to be very careful when we look at addressing climate change, not to just sort of lump large numbers of countries or peoples and say, you're in this group and you're in that group. I think it's very important to recognize. And again, this is what the Paris Accord partially does, is understand that each of these countries or, or perhaps groups of countries have unique challenges and opportunities. And they also know best how to both um, decarbonize and maintain economic well-being for, for, for the people who live there. Mm, I see. Well, with so many countries having so many different opportunities and you know places they need to, to improve on, how do you set a benchmark to see which countries are doing better, which mm -hmm. countries are doing worse? And if each have their own development goals, how do you compare yeah. them to each other? Yeah. So that's a good question that I think has not been well answered to date. And I say that in the sense that there are various reports out there that show who's, who's doing poorly, who's doing less poorly, and so on. And those, those reports tend to be designed to focus on who's not making progress. And this is something that I find um, frustrating. Also, I also think it's, it's a mistake. And let me, let me put it let me frame it this way. If we think about uh, business, and I teach in a business school, and you know, although I teach climate change, I teach in a business school, I, I don't teach my students what a company is not doing or a CEO is not doing. In most cases, vast majority of times, we teach them what a company or a business or a business leader is doing. And we try to learn from that. And we learn, what are they doing that works? What are they doing that doesn't work so well? What are they doing as compared to others? In other words, the focus that we see on comparing, say, country to country 
tends to default towards who's not doing enough. And what I really like to see is a focus on who is decarbonizing, but much more importantly, it's not, it's not the who, it's the how. Because one of the things that's in the Paris Accords, and I think is, is important, is that countries are to be transparent in how they're decarbonizing. And we do need to learn from each other. I, I said a few minutes ago that we should recognize that different countries have very different challenges and opportunities, but we can learn from each other a great deal. And the faster we know how a country or region decarbonizes, and the faster that other places copy that or learn from it and adapt to that, the better off we'll all be. So what I'd really like to see is more focus, not on what we're failing to do, there's plenty of focus on that already. I want to see more focus on what we're doing that's working. And I want to see that faster. They, we shouldn't be writing books at the speed I write books. Books are a very slow way of getting information out there. We should begin the information out really quickly. We should know at this point, last month, last quarter, last year, yesterday, how much solar was installed, where, why? Where did it go quickly? How did that happen? And then let's do that again some, everywhere else. Professor Usher's expertise has shed light on both the strides we've made and the hurdles that lie still ahead. While technological advancements and the global collaborations give us hope, the crux of the challenge, as highlighted, is the pace of our transition and our commitment to change. Stay tuned as we continue to explore more facets of this crucial topic, aiming to foster understanding and inspire action in our path forward. I'm your host, Charlie Du. Please subscribe to our channel, World Salon, for more insightful conversations about the pressing issues around our world. See you next time.